And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him, whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Christ the King at Crimson Teens. We are continuing our series in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And our text from God's Word this morning is 1 Samuel, chapters 9 and 10, that Louise read for us. So please keep your Bibles handy. In the last chapter that Keith preached from last week, the people of Israel have come to Samuel and demanded a king to be set over them. A king like the kings of the other nations. Samuel felt the people were rejecting him as the God-ordained judge over Israel, but God said to Samuel, they, are, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Since the time the Lord rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, they have wanted him to be a god like the gods of the other nations. Mm. One whose image they could see. Remember when they made the golden calf? And one they could manipulate by putting his honor on the line. Remember when they carted the ark into battle against the Philistines? And now they also want a king like the kings of the other nations. Now for, remember from last week, in one of the books of Moses, Deuteronomy, God says there will come a time when the people may have a king, but the key is in the kind of king. Not a king who is a law unto himself, but a king who, together with the people, is under the, God, the, the law of God knowing and upholding that law. A king who is under God the king, not a replacement for God the king. But the people are not trusting and waiting upon the Lord to provide them this kind of king. They don't want to wait at all. They are nervous about their enemies now and they want the kind of king the other nations have now to save them from their enemies now. Samuel warns the Israelites about the consequences of what they are asking. The kind of king they want will be all take, 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 take. But the people stubbornly insist on having a king like the nations because they want to be like the nations. The Lord is not a god like other gods. And he is not a king like other kings. And God's people are not meant to be a nation like other nations. 
every effort then and now to make God who we want him to be or trust substitutes in his place or be called by his name and yet be like everyone else is idolatry. But this is what the people want. And at the end of the last chapter, the Lord says to Samuel, obey their voice. Make them a king. Our passage today, chapters 9 and 10, introduces Saul and details how he becomes Israel's first king. Now, if you've heard a little bit but not too much about King Saul and about King David who follows him. You have probably heard this. Saul was really bad and <laughs> David was really good. It's almost as if Saul is an evil foil who makes David look really good in comparison. But as we'll see by looking deeper, Saul was not all bad, at least not at the start. And by the end of 2 Samuel, we will know that David was not all good. But the office of Israelite king, which begins with Saul and David, points ahead to Messiah, the truly good king. We're going to explore this text by asking and answering three questions. The first question, who chooses Saul as king? The second question, who is this Saul who has been chosen as king? And third question, why is Saul chosen as king? So that was, who chooses Saul as king? Who is this Saul who is chosen as king? And why is Saul chosen as king? So the first question, who chooses Saul as king? The answer is, God chooses him. But God chooses him according to the people's desires. Hmm. Chapter 9 opens when this fellow Saul and his servant are out looking for lost donkeys. And the search uh, brings them into contact with Samuel in uh, chapter 9, verse 14. But then the narrative is immediately interrupted to tell us what is really going on. Without Saul knowing it, God has sent him to Samuel. And God has advised Samuel of this in time for Samuel to arrange a dinner party in Saul's honor because Saul is the one God has chosen to be king. Take a look at chapter 9, verses 15 to 17. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, 
the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. In accordance with God's choice, Samuel arranges to anoint Saul with oil privately and make known God's word to him. In uh, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Then Samuel prophesied three signs. God will use these signs to confirm to Saul that he is indeed being chosen by God to be Israel's first king. All these signs come to pass in that very day. So now both Samuel and Saul know what is going on, but no one else. Finally, Samuel calls the people together before the Lord. He goes through a process of casting lots. It's kind of like flipping coins. To allow God to reveal to all the people his choice for king. First, the tribe of Benjamin is taken by lot. Then the clan of the Matrites is taken by Lot. And finally, Saul, the son of Kish, is taken by Lot. So now, everyone knows who the king is going to be. And Samuel presents him to the people in chapter 10, verse 24, with these words. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. So God is the one who chooses Saul as king. But as we are about to see, God chooses him in, in accordance with the people's desires. So in a sense, the people too have chosen Saul. Later in uh, 1 Samuel, God will choose another king, David, who is known as a man after God's own heart. But in Saul, God has chosen a man after the people's heart. So let's look at our second question. Who is this Saul who is chosen as king? We meet Saul in the first two verses of chapter 9. We learn Saul's father, Kish, is a wealthy man from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul is young, <laughs> handsome, and a head taller than anyone else. The middle of chapter 9, verse 2 says, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. The verses that follow are about uh, Saul's three-day trek in search of his father's lost donkeys. In this account, apart from learning that perhaps Saul is not very good at tracking livestock, <laughs> we get a glimpse of Saul's spiritual history, or lack thereof. <laughs> it seems Saul didn't know much, if anything, 
about Samuel before he met him at his servant's prompting. Way back in chapter 3, we learned that the Lord was with Samuel and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel from Dan to, Dan to Beersheba, the whole land, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet, prophet of the Lord. So all of Israel knew Samuel, including Saul's servant, but apparently not Saul. Another detail later on in chapter 10 also supports the idea that Saul did not have much depth in spiritual matters. This detail comes um, when the last of the confirming signs takes place. So on his way back home, Saul is approaching his town of Gibeah and meets a group of prophets. The Spirit of God rushes upon him and he begins to prophesy with the prophets. Then we have this extra detail. Look in chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? People who knew Saul previously are surprised and it seems skeptical when they see Saul prophesying with the prophets. The question, and who is their father, has a derogatory sense. It suggests doubt about Saul's paternal origin and ridicules the uh, prophetic movement at the same mm -hmm. time. And so the phrase, is Saul also among the prophets, becomes like a sarcastic saying as in, is Saul also among the prophets? Yeah, right. <laughs> so it seems Saul's family has not been known uh, for their spiritual devotion to the Lord. And Saul's high school yearbook probably did not name Saul as the most likely to become a prophet of the Lord. Yet back in chapter 9, when Saul first meets Samuel, Samuel claims that Saul and his father's house are about to be very important in Israel. Uh, the verse that deals with this is chapter 9, verse 20, and apparently it's a little bit tricky to translate because English translations go one of two ways with this, this verse. Either they have Samuel saying that Saul and his family will be blessed with everything desirable in Israel. Or Samuel says that Saul and his family are just what Israel desires. Mm -hmm. Take a look at the latter half of chapter 9, verse 20. Our ESV translation has Samuel saying, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you? 
and for all your father's house. But listen to some other English uh, translations of this have verse. The NIV has, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, mm. if not to you and your whole family line? The NRSV has, and on whom is all Israel's desire fixed, mm. if not on you and on, and on all your ancestral house? The King James uh, has the same, except throws in a V and a I. And uh, finally, this uh, translation called the Complete Jewish Bible has, Now who is it that all Israel wants? Mm. Isn't it you mm. and all your father's household? Now consider Saul's response to Samuel's astonishing statement. Saul is completely caught off guard and in disbelief. He protests that it cannot be, since Benjamin is the least of all the tribes of Israel, and his clan is the humblest in Benjamin. Is this false humility? Probably not. Benjamin was the least of all the tribes in more ways than one. It was the cause of the civil war in Israel that came at the end of the book of Judges. And it was almost wiped out in that civil war. And although Saul's father was a wealthy man, nothing is said about his clan, the Matrites, anywhere else in the Bible, which is at least consistent with them being of little account. God chose Saul as king, and God did so according to the desires of the people. But one thing seems sure, Saul didn't choose Saul. He went out looking for donkeys and found he had been appointed Israel's first king. There is no sense of him stepping into a destiny that he anticipated in any way. On the contrary, he doesn't seem to know what hit him. The text has Saul passively going through the banquet that Samuel arranged and the evening guest at Samuel's home and the early morning anointing, all without comment. Later when his uncle asks him what's been going on, he admits that he was looking for the donkeys, went to Samuel when he couldn't find them, and that Samuel assured him they had been found. But he says nothing about the matter of the kingship or any of the signs that have come to pass on his way home. Perhaps it all seemed like a dream. The oil poured on his head, the Spirit of God rushing upon him and prophesying with the prophets. Maybe even an anxiety dream. Because when Samuel calls all the people together for the Lord to choose a king by lot, Saul <laughs> hides himself among the baggage. Yet even in his absence, he is chosen by lot. And it is the Lord himself who tells the people where to find him. Mm -hmm. 
This brings us to our last question. Why is Saul chosen as king? And the answer is, he is chosen to express God's judgment and God's mercy on his people. Both judgment and mercy. Let's look at judgment first and end with mercy. God's judgment was to give the people a king after their own hearts. Their hearts had turned from trusting God to trusting instead in worldly assets like appearance and stature and wealth. Saul's youth means he has no real history, either bad or good, and his shocked wordlessness and being chosen king does give him an air of humility. But the lack of spiritual depth or commitment in him or in his family does not bode well for how he will ultimately handle the privileges and responsibilities and expectations of being king. When, Saul, excuse me, when Samuel calls the people together to reveal God's choice for the king they are asking for, the text rings with the message of judgment. In chapter 10, verses 17 to 19, Saul begins by delivering the Lord's indictment against his people. Although he has saved them time and time again, they have rejected him and asked for a substitute. A God's substitute is an idol. They have asked for a human eye. And then Samuel leads them through a process of casting lots that remembers a previous occasion of God's judgment in the book of Joshua. And in this process, Saul was chosen. Mm. As I was reflecting on Saul this week, um, a song that was popular a few years ago came to my mind. Um, it's by a teenage uh, boy band called One Direction. And the song is called, That's What Makes You Beautiful. <laughs> Now, it's a very catchy song, but the cute lyrics prove entirely vacuous if you think about them for very long. In the song, a beautiful young woman doesn't know she's beautiful. So the singer writes a song telling her that it's her shy insecurity about her beauty that actually makes her beautiful. The chorus ends with these words, you don't know you're beautiful. That's what makes you beautiful. <laughs> okay, well, how long is that going to last? How long before she realizes she's beautiful, considering you just wrote a quadruple platinum pop song about her? Huh. No more sweet, shy thing. You've created a monster. <laughs> Idolatry does that. When we idolize people, it is destructive to both us and them. 
There is a competition on, on TV called American Idol. There's also a Canadian Idol, and I, I found out there's also a Chinese Idol. <laughs> now, in these competitions, formerly unknown singers are suddenly made into stars by popular acclaim on television. Well, when formerly unknown Saul is named Israel's first king, it's as if he is suddenly elevated from obscurity to stardom as the new Israelite idol. Mm -hmm. He didn't know he was just what Israel wanted, but now he does. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have the spiritual depth of relationship with the Lord or the experiential maturity to handle all that is going to come now. Mm -hmm. And by the time the Israelites, the Israelite people, realized how wrong they were to mm. set their hearts on having a king like the other nations, instead of setting their hearts wholly on the Lord, it's going to be a very messy, long, drawn-out business to replace Saul with David. Mm. And it's not like David will remain free of the corruption that comes from being idolized either. It's all a reminder to us that we are made by God for God. And in order for things to be right, God must be at the center. The sole focus of our worship, individually and corporately. That's why the first commandment carved on the tablets in the Ark of the Covenant says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Yet, even as the choosing of Saul as king expresses God's judgment, there is also God's mercy that comes with it. Mercy both for the wayward people and for the ill-prepared, hapless Saul. Look back at uh, chapter 9, verse 16, when the Lord first tells Samuel what he's doing with the people's demand for a king. The Lord says, Tomorrow, about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Even though the people no longer trust God to fight for them, yet God continues to hear their cries for deliverance from their enemies and provide for them a king who, who will at least at the start uh, be an effective military leader and save them from the hand of their enemies. At the beginning of chapter 10, when Samuel privately anoints Saul, Samuel charges Saul with this mission hmm. of saving the people from their surrounding enemies. And then he prophesies three signs by which God in his mercy will both assure Saul that he has been chosen as king 
for this mission and equip Saul for this mission. A particular note is the third sign. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. After that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with me, and be turned into another man. And skipping down to verses 9 and 10, when he, Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day when they came to Gibeah. Behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So even though up to this point in his life, Saul has not sought the Lord, has not sought spiritual things. The Lord gives him, at least temporarily, a new heart and the help of God's own spirit. And he promises to be with Saul in order that Saul might fulfill as king this saving mission. God also provides Saul with guidance and practical support. In chapter 10, verse 8, uh, we have Saul saying, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So God has given to Saul Samuel as a spiritual mediator and counselor. And Saul is to wait for God's direction that comes to him through Samuel. Then in chapter 10, verse 25, it says, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. So God has given Saul, in the presence of the people, a written job description. Very helpful. And finally, in chapter 10, verse 26, it says, Saul also went home to Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. So God has given Saul the beginning of the army he will need for his mission. Our passage ends with the next verse, which is right at the end of chapter 10. This verse contrasts those men of valor who rally around Saul for the mission God has given him, contrasts them with other men who despise him and dismiss his saving mission. Now, at first, we might be inclined to agree with Saul's detractors because we know that in the end, Saul will not prove to be a good king. But guess what? The Bible calls these men worthless, these detractors. And instead, ends chapter 10 by highlighting Saul's gracious restraint in holding his peace at their words. Mm. 
look at chapter 10, verse 27. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. As a reminder to us that regardless of what we may think of our political or other leaders, and in particular, even if we think having those leaders is an expression of God's judgment, we are not free to merely sit back and despise them. Cynicism is not a godly virtue. Trust me, I need to hear this word as much as anything. We are called to pray for our leaders, no matter how good or bad or capable or incompetent we think they are. Because even in judgment, God works mercy. And even those who are not walking with the Lord may be used by the Lord for his saving purposes. In conclusion, let's review our questions and answers. Who chose Saul as king? God did. But according to the people's idolatrous, that is, God-substituting, desires. Who is this Saul who has chosen as king? He is the new Israelite idol, big on appearances, lacking in spiritual depth and experience. And why was Saul chosen as king? For judgment? and for mercy. But the ultimate mercy of God to which the Israelite monarchy points, even with its many dubious kings, including Saul, is Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. Saul was the first to be anointed king of Israel, but the anointed one was to be a king in the line of David who would have the ultimate saving mission. A mission not only to save God's people in Israel, but to save God's people of every nation, language, and tribe. A mission not only to save us from our external enemies of all kinds, but to save us, as Keith said a couple of weeks ago, from our own sinful hearts. Messiah will not have any of the failings of Saul or David or anyone else because Messiah will not be a God substitute. He is God. And his mercy to us at the cross is everything we could ever need in a king but apart from his grace would never have known to Lord, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.